wealth brings purpose. We're here to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church. We're here to equip one another to shepherd our hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God. Why? So that we live gospel-transformed lives. And then we see what that does. It strengthens the church. It strengthens the church and its gospel purpose. That's why we're here so early on a Saturday morning. And, you know, we focus on three disciplines. And the first one is our heart. Discipline one, the faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward the word of God and in particular the gospel. So we're here to encourage one another to care well for our hearts and to lead our hearts and to draw near with our hearts to him and his word. To worshipfully pursue God through his word. With an expression of love and need for discipline, or uh, need for Jesus. And you know what? It takes discipline, right? It just does. It takes discipline. That worship would take place when we read our Bibles. And um, I'm so thankful for Wellspring and, and the opportunity to be encouraged and to prioritize my life with these disciplines. When we are disciplined and shepherding our hearts, as we meet with him in his word, that's when we're strengthened in our love for him and our affection for him. And uh, we want to live gospel-transformed lives and how we serve and obey him and how we think rightly and how we can guard our hearts above all else. Because shepherding our hearts doesn't end when we close our Bi- or when we close our Bible in the morning or whenever you close your Bible, right? Remember, our hearts need shepherding with what we know um, from his word constantly. It's an ongoing shepherding. It's an ongoing strengthening of our inner man, of our hearts. Life is busy, right? Who doesn't have a busy life? I don't even see one hand. (laughs) We don't. We're busy. And, you know, seasons continually change. Sometimes it's easier than others. Um, but we keep fighting. We keep fighting to make it a priority to meet with him in his word, right? And it takes discipline to be purposeful and to be diligent with meeting uh, with the God of the word. Our second discipline is about the relationships in our home, and we'll be focusing on discipline two this morning. We're taking a little turn into discipline two. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And like Scott says, it can be easy for us to leapfrog over those relationships um, in our home or those that enter into our home to get to really good things, to get to good things. Doesn't necessarily, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be bad things. Um, but we'll see even this morning God's concern for those relationships. And when we talk about household relationships, when we talk about discipline too, this morning we'll be talking about you know household relationships and the home. And I just want you guys to keep in mind it's for everyone, regardless of season of life, regardless of circumstance. There isn't anyone that discipline too doesn't apply to, um, or doesn't include whether you're single, whether you're single living with roommates, whether you're widowed, whether you're married with or without children, whether you're empty nesters, grandparents, caring for those outside of your home, the principle still applies. Um, whatever your circumstance, discipline too applies to you because we want to give off this aroma in our household of someone who loves God, who meets with him in his word, who delights in him, 
and then lives out a gospel transformed life there and we want to make an impact for the gospel there i love scott's prayer remember the prayer that scott um or that we got i think is that first week i'm going to read just this um one paragraph and um it's very impactful. I desire my heart and mind to be full of you because of what these pages revealed to me about you and all your greatness. I long for you to spill out of me into my home, discipline too, and wherever you lead me today. All who come into contact with me today must interact with one whose heart has drawn near to you and is striving to obey you. Their best hope for salvation or for growth in the gospel will come from one who has searched for you and your word and gazed upon your son in the gospel and who walks by your spirit. That's so good. That sums up discipline three as well. The third discipline is ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So this is how we minister the gospel to the people in our church. It's how the body uh, cares for the body and helps the body grow in all of those uh, ministry opportunities. And this is how we care for others outside of the church as well. We're going to be stepping into people's lives inside and outside of the church to practice and grow, um, or as we continue to practice and grow discipline one. I'm sorry, this feels so like. I don't see you guys over there. <laughs> or like, I don't know what it is. I think it's because you guys are way over there. Okay. Well, this is week five, and we're beginning to see just how critical it is that we care for our hearts with his word. And like I said this morning, we're going to move into seeing the importance God places on those relationships within our household, discipline too. And this morning, we'll... Um, We'll see God's inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our household relationships. We're going to look at nine categories to help us see God's heart for household relationships. So those relationships that may take place in our home. We're going to survey scripture this morning. Um, We're going to start with in the Old Testament, and we're going to work our way into the New Testament. We do that because that's how God gradually unfolded his revelation to us. Um, We want to work our way from the front to the back so that we get a full sense of God's heart. And many of you have heard this, uh, you know, what, five, six times. And, um, you know, so that has been our prayer today. It would impact our heart fresh this morning as we talk about these things. The first category that we're going to look at this morning is the relationship between the heart, our inner man, remember, our inner man and our household relationships. And we're going to start with Exodus 20.12. So you can open your Bibles to Exodus 20.12. And as we look at this, um, we need to remember Christians are not under Mosaic law. We don't obey the command to honor your father and mother because it's in the Ten Commandments, but we do obey it because... Jesus taught it in Matthew 15. And uh, when we see a promise in the Old Testament, most often, most often it's given to Israel, not to Christians unless it's repeated in the New Testament. It doesn't mean there's no value in Mosaic law. It does have value because it reveals God's heart. 
Remember, all of Scripture is revelation. All of Scripture is profitable. All of Scripture provides examples of which we can learn from, and it shows us um, the character of God, and we don't want to miss that. But we want to obey for the right reasons under Christ. We exalt Christ because he's greater than Mosaic law. Now, in Exodus 20, 12, in the, it's in the middle of the Ten Commandments. Verse 12 is the fifth commandment. The first four commandments are concerned with Israel's relationship with God. They're vertical. And then we see a turn, a different focus in the remaining commandments. They're horizontal, um, which means that they focus on relationships between people. And we're going to look at those commandments that focus specifically on the household relationship. So let's look at verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So here he's speaking of the land promised to Israel. And we see the first human household relationship God deals with is the parent-child relationship. The way children are to respond to their parents. They're to show them honor. And then verse 14, um, you shall not commit adultery. So here we see God's focused on the husband-wife relationship in the home. God provides instruction for that. And then in verse 17, God is concerned that Israel think rightly about their neighbor's household. When he says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So Israel was to be concerned that they weren't looking wrongly at another person's household. They were to focus on being content with their own household, to think rightly about everything and everyone in and associated with the household. So again, the first four commandments address Israel's relationship to God, how they are to relate rightly to him. And the very next thing he addresses is the household relationships. Three times in the last six commandments, God deals with household relationships. As God is giving Mosaic lies, has very specific expectations for the household and those foundational relationships. So we see God's priority in what is important to him. So now let's turn to Deuteronomy 4. Deuteronomy 4. Um, this is where Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, but they rebelled. They wouldn't go and take possession of the land and God was giving, that God was giving them. And so they wandered in the desert, for, in the wilderness for 40 years, right? Remember that? And because of that, they weren't allowed to go into the land until that generation had died off. So now, 40 years later, Moses is talking to their children who are now grown, who were told originally to honor your parents. Now many of them are parents, and Moses is at the end of his life, and he's reteaching them the law before they enter the promised land. Deuteronomy 4, uh, starting in verse 9, says, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently. Why? So that you do not forget the things which your eyes have seen, and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life. That's discipline one spelled out for Israel. But... Make them known to your sons and grandsons. Discipline too. Do you see how he ties the heart to the household relationships? And then verse 10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I, I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. 
So the burden for the Israelite household was for parents to make known to their children what God did in redeeming them from Israel. That they would take care of their own hearts with his word and then to teach their children. Now let's go to Deuteronomy uh, 6, verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words, which I'm commanding you today, shall be on your heart. There's discipline one again. God connects love for him with his word. And inseparable, again, we see from discipline one, we see discipline two. Verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates so do you hear God's heart for the household there he's saying your household Israel is to be dominated by concern for my word There's to be this inseparable connection between love the Lord your God with all your heart and teach them to your children. This connection with what they did with their hearts and their family. So do you see how discipline one, our hearts, and discipline two, our household relationships are inseparable. God wanted Israel to impress his words on their own hearts and on the hearts of the next generation. How? Well, by living them out on a daily basis, by talking about them, by thinking about them. They were to be constantly on their minds and hearts. The older generation was to constantly model their complete loyalty to God in every way possible. All right, let's turn to chapter 7 of Deuteronomy. Chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, and we'll see the influence that our hearts have on our home. This passage is really interesting because we see that the influence, it flows both ways. Not just our hearts to our household relationships, we know that's true, but also our home and household relationships to our hearts. Starting in verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, and then he lists seven nations that are greater and stronger than them, and when the Lord your God delivers them before you and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show them no favor. So Israel, the Israelites are told that when they enter the promised land, they're to completely destroy the inhabitants. They're to make no treaties with them. They're to show them no mercy. And then in verse 3, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Why? Verse 4, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. We can Let's read verse 5. But thus you shall do to them, you shall tear down their altar, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their asher, and burn their graven images with fire. All of their idolatry was to be destroyed. And God is telling them, there's to be no household in Israel where an Israelite mar- marries a foreigner who worships another god. 
He makes it, God makes it very clear the kind of household he wanted for them, right? The kind of household he desires. And this kind of idolatrous household, it, it was not to exist in Israel. Why? Well, we see in verse 4. Because hearts are easily led astray. Hearts get turned away from Yahweh. So the burden in Israel was on the parents to not allow their children into this kind of marriage, to teach them in such a way that their children, the next generation, would want to follow God. They would not want to abandon him. And part of that meant not marrying people who followed other gods. And so we see it goes both ways. We know our heart affects our home. And what's going on in our home does influence and impact our hearts in the same way that our hearts does influence and impact our homes. You guys see that? You guys following? Are you awake? Do you need a break yet? <laughs> it's barely like 7.30. <laughs> Hang in there. All right, now let's go to Psalm 78. Let's go to Psalm 78, and we'll see the heart's influence again in this passage. Here's an example of the inseparable connection between what we do with our hearts and the impact that it makes on the next generation. Psalm 78, starting in verse 1. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to my words, to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable, and I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from our children, but tell to the generation to come, the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he's established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should, what? Teach them, God's word, to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. That's already four generations. Why? That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And not to be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. They were not to follow after the example of their parents who failed to watch over their hearts, who quickly forgot about God who became disloyal to him. He says their hearts were stubborn and rebellious. Here's a father telling his household, do not be like the prior generations who did not care for their hearts, who did not shepherd their hearts. Children, don't be like your great-grandparents who did not do this. It's a sobering to think that the next generation would say something like that about us. We certainly don't want that. And, you know, even though we know this passage is addressed to Israel, we know that there is a principle that we can take away as believers today. And we need to be convinced. We need to be convinced that God cares about our hearts and the impact that we make on the next generation. You guys starting to see that? All right, let's move into the New Testament. Let's turn to Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. We'll see again, God addresses this inseparable relationship between 
the heart and household relationships. This is a repeat of the fifth commandment. And now it's brought under the authority of Christ to his church through the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Now to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and, and instruction of the Lord. So first Paul addresses the children. Obey your parents. How? In the Lord. In the Lord. Not simply out of fear of punishment. The motivation for obedience is out of reverential love for God. Children need to be taught to obey their parents in a way that honors the Lord. And we know that God is the one who sovereignly does a work, right? A work in heart. But it's the parents' responsibility to teach them and to shepherd them in the gospel. And I just have to say, um, it's a privilege to watch so many of uh, the mommies here at Grace Bible Church do that so well. And you guys are examples to me. Um, You're modeling this. So then we see in verse 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So parents, in particular, must be faithful with discipline and instruction in the Lord so as not to frustrate their children. I don't, how many mommies do we have here? We still have some mommies in this room, and it, or those who have already raised children, and doesn't this require a lot of heart shepherding on our parts, right? And aunties and grandparents. So we see God again demonstrating, now in the New Testament, the household rela- that household relationships matter to him in Christ. All right, 1 Timothy. Let's turn to 1 Timothy 3. No, actually, you don't even need to turn there. I'm just going to, uh, I'm just going to, you can if you want. I mean, if you're already there, just, <laughs> you can do it. I don't want to stop you. <laughs> They're like, oh, no, wait, okay. <laughs> um, uh, here, Paul is instructing Timothy regarding overseers and elder qualifications. And we see that the household is so important to God that in order to be qualified to be an overseer in the church, a man must manage his own household well to set an example for the rest of the body. He, in verse 4, he says he must be one who manages his own household well. How? By keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he take care of the church of God? So as you read your Bible, you cannot deny that God places high concern on his word, on our hearts, and on household relationships, right? Right, you can turn to Titus. Turn to Titus 2. But you don't have to. I'm just saying if you want to. (laughs) Titus 2. Here, women are addressed. And there's going to be more teaching on Titus 2, 3 through 5 next time we meet. Sarah Demarest is going to be here. You're going to be so blessed. Um, But we're just going to fly over it right now. And uh, just look at this one thing, starting in verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so they may encourage the young women to. And then now, notice how, what, um, how he focuses on the household relationships here. Love their husbands, 
love their children, be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands. Why? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Do you see the main concern? It's God's word. A woman's faithfulness in her household is of great significance in the gospel mission. As a woman cares well for her heart, as she shepherds her heart and is faithful in those household relationships, it impacts the way others speak of God's word. So after surveying the Old Testament and working our way into the New Testament, how could we not be concerned, not only for our own heart, but about our household relationships as well, because we see just how very important it is to God, how they are to God. And and that was all point number one on your outline. Now we're on number two. Would you guys like to take a quick three-minute break? Are you good? Anybody hot? Or just me? Okay, keep going. I'll just have my own personal summary. (laughs) No, I'm good. (laughs) No, it's okay. All right, let's look at number two on your outline. We're going to look at an Old Testament example of a woman who grasped God's heart for her household. Turn to the book of Ruth. Ruth. Ruth's life took place during the time when there was no king in Israel. It was when the judges ruled. Oh, thank you. I've got some. Thank you, though. It's when the judges ruled. And the book of Judges, right before Ruth, ends with these words. In those days, you guys there? You good? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That was a spiritual climate. There was no submission to God, no submission to authority. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in the midst of this dark period of history, we find Ruth. Her life was a refreshing exception to that. In Ruth 1, we find there's um, a man named Elimelech, who takes his wife Naomi and his sons and move to Moab because there's a famine in Israel. And then he dies. And after that, his sons marry Moabite women, and then the sons die. I mean, can you imagine? I I can't even imagine what that must have been like for Naomi. But she heard the famine was over in Israel, and so she heads home. And at first, first, her daughters and law, they go with her, and then Naomi urges them to stay in Moab with their own people, with their own culture. And one of them agrees, Orpah agrees to do that. But Ruth, she clings to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And again, Naomi urges her, go back like your sister-in-law did, back to your people, back to your Moabite God. But Ruth responds with this bold declaration of faith in verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I'll go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Ruth declares that Naomi's God, Yahweh, the one true God of the Bible, is her God. And then listen to what she says next. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may Yahweh do to me, or worse, if anything but death parts you and me. So 
So Ruth is prepared to leave her culture, to leave her language, to stay with her mother-in-law. In Ruth's mind, to have Yahweh as her God meant being devoted to her mother-in-law, devoted to her household. She's a beautiful role model of a woman whose heart was for God first. She demonstrated that by loving her widowed mother-in-law, the same mother-in-law who encouraged her to stay uh, in Moab with her Moabite gods, go and find a husband there. The mother-in-law, by her own admission, was a bitter woman. You see that in verse 20. She returns to her home in Bethlehem, and the other women say, Is this Naomi? And then in verse 20, Naomi says, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. She's not just bitter, but she is bitter with God. But this proud, bitter woman is family to, to Ruth. And Ruth chooses to love her. Even though she was a foreigner, she had no idea what the future would bring, um, Ruth's love for God drove her to love her mother-in-law, Naomi. You can read the rest of how this turns out, um, or you already know, and it's a beautiful uh, picture of just how God uses this and uses Ruth. But Ruth demonstrates for us a love for God um, that led her to care for her household, even when it was difficult. All right, number three on your outline. We're going to look at... um, some Old Testament failures to grasp God's heart for the family and for the home. Um, you can read uh, on your own the account of Eli. We're not going to cover all of these passages that you have on your outline um, but you, in 1 Samuel uh, 2, but God held Eli accountable because it was more, for Eli, it was more important for him to please his sons than to honor God. And, you know, with so much emphasis on household relationships, it's important to remember it's not God's desire that we would set our household relationships up so high that we would honor our family over him. And the First Kings 11, we see Solomon's example, and you can read that on your own. But let's, um, this is not on your outline, but you can turn to First Kings 21 if you'd like. After seeing Ruth, who understood God's heart for her household, we're now going to look at a couple of women who did not. We're going to look at Jezebel and Athaliah. And as you turn uh, there, here's a little context. God made David king over all of Israel, all 12 tribes, after the death of Saul. David was succeeded by his son Solomon, his king who was king over all of those tribes. And then after Solomon died, the kingdom was divided into a northern and southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is most often referred to as Judah, and the northern kingdom is usually called Israel. Jezebel comes along about 75 years after the death of Solomon. And Jezebel marries King Ahab of the northern kingdom, she was a daughter of a foreign king. And now remember back in Deuteronomy 7, we saw that intermarrying with a pagan nation was forbidden. Nonetheless, Ahab marries Jezebel and brought her to Israel to be queen. And with her, he brought false gods and false idolatrous worship, thus provoking God. So already we see it's not a man or a woman who understands God's heart for marriage or family, right? And we know that Israel was plagued with idolatry throughout her history, but most of the time they did 
continue to give God some kind of lip service, but not Jezebel. See, Jezebel wanted to destroy worship of Yahweh. So we see in 1 Kings 21, 4 and 5, Jezebel finds out that her husband is sullen and vexed. He's, he's resentful and angry because this man Naboth wouldn't sell him his vineyard. So Jezebel schemes to get the people to kill Naboth so Ahab can go and steal his vineyard. And in Israel, the land was supposed to be handed down from generation to generation. But Jezebel has no regard for the home, no regard for the family, no regard for the ways of God. It was trivial for her to take a man's life, to murder, to get his land, and to rob his family of their inheritance. We see what um, verse 25 says, Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. What an indictment to stop and think. This one woman, Jezebel, is responsible for Baal worship in Israel, persecution, persecution of God's prophets, murder of Naboth, robbery of a family's inheritance, the inciting of a king, her husband, to do evil, using and abusing the influence in her home. We're just getting started. We're not done. Ahab and Jezebel, they have a daughter Athaliah. And Athaliah marries Jehoram, a king in the southern kingdom. Now remember her father Ahab was in the northern kingdom, and sadly Jezebel's wicked influence spread through her daughter. How? Well, 2 Kings 8.18 says, you don't need to turn there, but Jehoram did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his wife, Athaliah. So now we see a husband doing evil because of his wife who had been influenced by her mother. And what kind of evil did he do? Well, 2 Chronicles 21.4 tells us that when he had taken over the kingdom of his father, you know what he did? He killed all his brothers. He killed all his brothers. And then Jehoram and Athaliah, they had a son named Ahaziah. You guys know I have to practice this every year, saying all of these names. <laughs> but he also did evil in the sight of the Lord because of his connection with his mother's family. Kind of hard to keep straight, but so far we see Jezebel's influence on Ahab, the king of Israel, her disregard for Naboth and his family. We saw the evil influence passed along to her daughter Athaliah, who then had an evil influence on her husband, the king of Judah, and now we see it extended to Athaliah's son as well. A corrupted husband, murder, robbery, Corrupted children, a man murdering his own brothers, more corruption of husband and children. I mean, it's just, it's the exact opposite of God's heart for the home, for household relationships. And we've seen that the home is to be a place where his name is declared. It's a place where um, his mighty works are remembered, where they're taught, where they're praised, where one generation exhorts another generation to love God and obey him. But this family has turned the home into a place that bonds evil, even against one another. They rejected anything that had to do with God's heart for the household. And it keeps going. We're still not done. You can turn to 2 Kings um, 11, if you would like. Now, in 2 Kings 10, Athaliah's son, King Ahaziah, he's killed. And then you can read with me what happens next in 2 Kings 11, 1. When Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she rose and destroyed all the royal offspring. 
Do you know what this is saying? This is a grandmother who murdered her grandchildren. I mean, stop and think about that. Athaliah annihilated her grandchildren. Why? So she could be in control. She wanted to be in charge. So she could rule. She wanted the throne. Now, it's easy to think, wow, that is crazy, right? That is crazy. Jezebel and Athaliah are way more sinful than we are, right? There's no way I could do anything like that. And maybe not to that extreme. But really, if we stop and think about it, if we stop and think about it, maybe we'll see areas of sin in our own lives. Remember, even though God has given us new hearts and new desires, we live in a mixed condition. We're not where we were, and we praise God for that, and we're not where we will be with, in eternity with him. No sin. But we still have a residue of sin. We're still battling sin today. And, you know, I know there are times when I want to be in control, when I want to rule, when I want to control others, especially those in my household. Is that something that you ever struggle with? Thank you. I see that head. (laughs) To grasp after what we want and maybe even sin to get it. That's idolatry. See, we can still struggle with the same things, the same sin, and it's destructive. And so we must guard our hearts. Above all else, our new hearts in their mixed condition, lay them bare before God's word, plead for a heart for our household that aligns with God's desire over our own. I think it's important to remember and always put before us that we, we will, we do have an impact in our household, for sure, right? The question is, what kind of impact? What kind of impact? All right, we started with looking at the relationship between the heart and household relationships in Scripture, and we saw the way Ruth's heart uh, for God impacted her household in a beautiful way, and we've seen just how destructive it is where there is rejection of God's heart for the household. And now let's move on to number four, the ease at which God is forgotten in the home. So now we're going to go back to Deuteronomy 8. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 8. And um, as you're turning there, here's a little context. We're back on the plains of Moab where Moses is reteaching the law to Israel. This is just 40 years after uh, they left slavery in Egypt, and this is Moses' warning to the Israelites. Starting in verse 10, When you've eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. And then here's the warning. Beware. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today. So he's telling Israel, when you're enjoying the blessings of God, things are going well, beware. Beware. This is the time to be concerned. That's when you'll be tempted to forget God. And you know what? This is not about failing to recall he exists. This is about acting as though he doesn't exist. And then verse 12. Lest when you've eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, 
when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all you have multiplies, here's the warning, then your hearts become proud and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God's warning them ahead of time. The household God's giving them where he is blessing them so richly where they, that's where they needed to be aware of the danger they were in. They needed to guard against pride, to guard against forgetting who their provider was and what he had done for them. And then we, um, and you know what, we need to be aware of the danger and guard our hearts of the very same thing, to guard against pride, to forget God, who our provider is, especially when things are going well in our household. We too just need to be aware of that danger and guard against it. And thankfully in Christ, our household can become a platform for impacting everyone who lives there, who enters there with the gospel, regardless of season of life, regardless of circumstance, prosperity, or hardship. We must not forget his provision. And you know, for us, the provision of our highest treasure is Christ. It's Christ. So we don't want to forget all right, number five on your outline, the impact of one's faith on the entire household. And, and we're not going to look at Acts 10 this morning, but I encourage you to read um, about Cornelius on your own. Um, but let's look at Acts 16. Acts 16, and this is where Paul and Silas are traveling from city to city in Europe and Asia, strengthening the churches, and they come to Philippi. And here's where we read about Lydia. Acts 16, starting in verse 13. Luke says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, a believer, come, in, come into my house and stay. So Lydia believed the God of Israel. God divinely brings Paul and Silas to her, where she and her household were gathered for prayer. And verse 14 tells us that the Lord opened her heart to the things spoken of by Paul. So we conclu conclude that Lydia already believed in Messiah anticipated. Paul most likely told her that Messiah has come. And so her faith was transferred from Messiah anticipated to Messiah known. And as a believer in God, we see she already understood the concern she was to have for her household. She, she would have known scripture. We see that they're there with her. So we see that connection to her household. Um, because they were there when, uh, with her when Paul spoke. And we know that their faith also was transferred from Messiah anticipated to Messiah known by verse 15. So we see Lydia's concern from the beginning, from the beginning for her household and the impact of her faith. All right, now let's look down at verse 29. We'll see the same thing with the Philippian jailer. Sometime later... Paul and Silas are thrown in jail because of this big uprising in Philippi, beginning in Acts 16, 19. And they had received severe beatings. Um, they were in a 
dark and smelly prison. Their feet were clamped into stocks so they couldn't move, they couldn't get comfortable, they were bloody, they were broken men in great pain. And remember, what do we find them doing? Yeah, yeah. They weren't grumbling or complaining, right? They were worshiping God. They were not stewing over being persecuted unjustly. They were worshiping. They were worshiping God. I love what Scott says on this passage. He says, the, remember when he taught this in Acts? He says, the best missionaries are undetoured worshipers. The one who is most captivated by the love of God will be most effective in being used by God. Isn't that good? The one who is most captivated by the love of God will be most effective in being used by God. All right, so then there's this violent earthquake. The doors were opened, and the prisoners' chains came loose, all serving God's purpose for his servants. The Philippian jailer assumes that everyone's escaped, which would have meant that he would have been executed as a consequence for failing his duties as a jailer, and so he's about to kill himself. And Paul calls out to reassure him and says, do yourself no harm, we're all here. So he shows compassion on the jailer. And then the jailer asks the only reasonable question after witnessing all of this in verse 30. He calls them and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I mean, what an important, significant question. He didn't ask like, Sirs, what in the world just happened? No, he knows. He knows, what must I do to be saved? And then how do they answer? Verse 31, and they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. So he brings the prisoners into his household. We see this jailer's connection with his household because they were there by, by verse 32, and they heard the answer to the question as well, what was, must we do to be saved? And that night a household was changed forever. As he took them, that very hour, verse 33 of the night, he washed their wounds. So here's this, here's this jailer. He goes from fastening their feet into stocks to showing them such compassion. He immediately was baptized, he and his household. Verse 34, and he brought them into his house, set food before them, and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So one man gets saved and impacted a whole household. What seemed like something terrible was about to happen to Paul and Silas was actually God's plan all along. It was God's plan all along to bring the gospel to the jailer and to save him and to save his household. So we see the impact of this jailer, this one person seeking after the Lord being saved, made on the entire household by God's grace. And you know what? We are to bring the gospel into our household each and every day as well. And to do this effectively, we must be soaking in it, soaking in the truths of the gospel daily, to be the hands and feet of Christ to those in our household because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and because we love his word. And, you know, it's why we always talk about discipline one and all the disciplines because it just requires heart shepherding. It requires daily dependence on him to ask him, you know what, God, if you would be pleased to change my whole household because of what you have done in me, through what you're doing in me, you know, I want to be a slave to that end. 
putting ourselves under his word, living as Christ's slave in our household, worshiping God regardless of circumstance. But there is an attack on the household. That's uh, number six on your outline. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3. <clears throat> Should it really surprise us if, is, surprise us if you know, that's what God is doing, how he's working, that there would be an attack on the household? There's this kind of link between our hearts, our household, and what God is doing and wants to ac- accomplish. It shouldn't surprise us that the home is a place of attack. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, so realize this. In the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. So there again we see the household connection. Ungrateful, unholy, and loving goes on. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied his power. Avoid such men as these. Why? Verse 6, for among them are those who enter into households. And what do they do? They captivate weak women. And what characterizes this weakness? It says they're weak because they are weighed down with sin, led on by various impulses. And verse 7 says they're always learning and never, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. So evidently there are women in these homes that don't know how the word of God, how the gospel addresses sin. Therefore, they're weighed down by their sin, by their various impulses. They're weak and susceptible. They're being led. They're being led by those impulses and desires. And they weren't equipped well to know how to deal with their sin, how to deal with their impulses or desires with the truth of the gospel and the realities of the gospel's impact. They're always learning something, but it's not heart-changing learning, heart-impacting, not shepherding to the word of God learning, so they're vulnerable. They're vulnerable to attack. And ladies, you know what? This is just a good time for us to to be sober about this. It's a warning because we have to be vigilant because attack against the Christian household often comes disguised to look benign and harmless. So let's think about who or what might creep into our homes. In our day, in our generation, I mean, our culture has a very strong, loud, getting louder voice, and it comes to us in what we're watching on TV, social media, blogs, books, magazines, the educational systems, telling us, give in to those impulses and desires, telling us, be a lover of self. They want us to believe it's healthy, actually, and we deserve to put ourselves first. There's a self-centered, self-seeking, self-absorbed, all those self-words message saying that's how you're to solve your problems with no gospel answers, no gospel power, even in a lot of materials that cloak themselves with the word Christian, sermons, books, all of that stuff. So we have to be careful and scrutinize everything we read, everything we watch, everything we listen to, and put it under the authority of God's word. We need to guard what we're keeping out, and we need to be purposeful with what we're putting in. We need to be purposeful with what we're putting in as well. 
And that's why we spend so much time on Discipline One, because if we do not understand why and how to shepherd our hearts to Jesus Christ through his word, if we don't use God's truth in the gospel to fuel our repentance and to fuel our growth and holiness, what can happen? Well, we too can become weak women. And then you know what? That poses a threat to our households. And not only that, to our church and to the gospel mission. And so this is serious. Serious warning. We too can be vulnerable to believing lies, to drinking the world's Kool-Aid about whatever message they have. And then just passing it right along to those closest to us. Strong warning. We've got to guard and care and protect those living in our household and protect and care for those who enter. And I know many of you are doing this well. Many of your parents are doing this well. You know, but we all need to heed this warning and to be aware. And I, I'm thankful that we have eld- elders and shepherds and those who um, see the concern for this and, and guard and uh, protect us as well. But we also need to guard against exalting the household above the gospel. So you can now turn to Matthew 10, and we're on number 7, your outline. The family or the home can become an obstacle to the gospel. Matthew 7, verse 34, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Jesus makes a strong point here that the gospel and his kingdom is first and everything else is second, including our families. He wants our heart first and most. We want to be in agreement with God and we don't want to lift our household above the gospel. We want to have things in right priority, not to lift our household higher than they should be. Um, you know, here's an example. Say in a household the gospel invades one person and that person is transformed and then she's called to bring the gospel to the rest of the family. And sometimes other family members are saved or a whole household is saved by God's grace like Lydia or the Philippian jailer. And, and we know that's in the Lord's hands, right? But Jesus is teaching that's not always the case. For some of us, we might actually find that our families become divided, that there is conflict. We have peace with God through Christ when we're saved. However, that doesn't mean that we have peace with everyone else. There may be conflict, and I've experienced this, and maybe some of you too, and it's, it can be very difficult. But if the family begins to stand in the way of the gospel, believers are to follow Christ and not the family. Even while staying in the family, in that household. As she displays the changes Christ has made in her, she loves her family, she serves her family, she forgives, seeks forgiveness in that family, and, and submits appropriately. We need, to, we need to keep reminding ourselves that our identity is in Christ first, not in the roles that God has us. Our identity is in Christ, and it's greater than our household and our family identity. It's why we can love. It's why we can esteem. It's why we can serve those closest to us. 
regardless of their reactions. Regardless of their reactions because of the gospel's impact in our lives. And we see God's, God places a huge priority in the household, and so should we. You know, for us, we have um, family of a different, of a, of a false religion. And where at times, you know, especially when our kids were younger, we, ha- we had to make some, some really hard decisions. Um, and you may too, but we do it with love and we do it with grace. And we need to remember we're Christ's first. And remember that it's an opportunity to pray before those encounters and um, before those interactions and get, get our hearts right. And, uh, but see those as opportunities See those as gospel opportunities. And there's no better way to love and serve those in your household and those who enter than to keep your affection for Christ first in your hearts. And the gospel enables you to love, to shine the light of Jesus in the midst of your family, even if you're the only believer there. Even if you're the only believer there. All right, so let's turn now to Ephesians 5, and we're on number 8. Let's look at Ephesians 5. Here's another household relationship. Submission to a husband requires a strong grasp of the gospel. And I, and I realize in this room that not all of you are married. Some of you have never been married. Some of you are no longer married. Um, we've seen just recently, even in our body, how quickly seasons and circumstances can change. That God doesn't change. And his design for marriage doesn't change. His word doesn't change. So whether we're married or not, our understanding of biblical marriage is so important. Ladies, it's just so important to uphold biblical marriage. Um, As you encourage your other married women, your sisters in Christ, as you um, teach your children, as you teach your daughters, as we encourage one another, our culture fight, fights so hard to make a mockery of marriage, uh, of Christian marriage, and so it's our responsibility to see the gospel portrayed in Christian marriage. So again, here we see God's instruction for household relationships in marriage. Ephesians 5.22, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. So when we think about marriage, we're to think about Christ and the church. How Christ again and again and again submitted himself to the will of the Father. Just as husbands are to submit themselves to the headship of the Lord, wives are to submit themselves to their husbands. We're to submit to Christ in everything. And a wife looks beyond her husband to Christ out of reverence for Jesus. In light of all that he's done in us, for us, through the gospel, we submit to Christ. And wives are to submit to their husbands. In marriage relationships, husband's a leader. And you know what? If we struggle to trust our earthly leader, we can still follow him because our heavenly leader, Jesus, is always trustworthy. He's, our, he's sovereign. He's good. And that's where we rest our confidence and where um, we all can encourage one another to do the same. 
So we need a solid understanding of biblical marriage, a solid understanding of the gospel and, and uh, how we explain the husband and wife relationship in marriage and how we live that out. But you know what, ladies? We all need to treasure, support, and build up biblical marriage and how we think about it and how we talk about it and how we married women respond and, and uh, just how married women talk about their husbands or anyone else's. So finally, number nine, a New Testament model. Priscilla and Aquila, and we're just going to wrap it up there and not cover number nine, but you can read that on your, on your own um, and see how Priscilla and Aquila served Paul and his ministry. But as we wrap up, what, how can we just kind of put a big bow on this? How, um, how, what do we see in all of this? You know, we've seen God's inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our homes, right? That God places a high priority on influencing our household with his word and the gospel. We've seen that a faithful believer in the gospel, um, as a faithful believer in the gospel, were to bring an aroma to the rest of our household, to guard our hearts. We've seen that we're to protect our household, to guard our hearts and protect our household, to root out any false thinking, any unbiblical thinking, any thinking that could, thinking that could come in and deceive us and negatively influence our household. So here's another question. Good time to evaluate. What's the spiritual climate of your home? What's the spiritual climate of your home? Do you see areas that you want to grow and change? Um, do you see how much is at stake when we think about the next generation and the reputation of God's word? Our obedience in our homes is essential for exalting God's design and its gospel work. And you know, our household relationships can also be a place of our, of our biggest failures. My household is the place of my greatest failures, deepest regrets, because of my own sin. As I live as a sinner, saved by God's grace, <laughs> I'm a sinner, <laughs> saved by God's grace. And there are times I can be provoking. I can seek control. I want to rule others. I want my own way. There are many regrets as I look back on my life. But um, if you do too, remember, be encouraged with me. It's not too late. We don't lose hope. We don't lose hope. It's not too late. Our homes are the perfect showcase for the gospel in you and through you even now. This is where we seek forgiveness, where we extend forgiveness, where we love, where we serve those whom God has in your home today, who enter into your home. It's God's grace to us that he would bring us even to the end of ourselves so that he gets all the glory for the work he's doing in us. As we grow, as we grow in being a gospel aroma in our homes, none of us have this wired. We don't have this wired. We're growing. Remember the, remember the threefold chart from the gray to the yellow? We're all growing. As we learn to trust our trustworthy Savior in our household, regardless of how others respond, regardless of how others respond, regardless of what your household is made up of, the gospel's that powerful. 
The gospel is that powerful to enable us to love the people in our household. To love those who enter because God loved us first. So as we look at what God's word says about the home, you know, it you know, it may expose some failure, regret, may expose sin. But when God exposes sin, believer, it's for the purpose of restoration. With him, with others, that's his grace to us, and it's good. It's good. So we plead with God to develop his love in our hearts, to be undetoured worshipers in our home. We plead with him, Lord, make me an undetoured worshiper in my home. Knowing his inseparable relationship between his word, our hearts, and our homes, let's encourage one another to take advantage of every opportunity God gives us to love and care for those in our household, with those relationships, with those who enter into our household and your sphere of influence. I can't help but think with the holidays coming, there's dynamics that are starting to, you might be starting to think about. Your gospel ambassadors in your home. So we want to seek and display God's impact, that he, how he's impacted us, and how we love others. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer, that you, by your spirit, would impact our hearts and change us. And uh, Lord, I pray that we all would just be undetoured worshipers in our home, and, and that we would see how important it, it is, and how um, the next, how, see what's at stake, even with the next generation. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these ladies. As we go into our discussion time now, I pray, Lord, that um, you would be made much of and that we would encourage one another with the truth from your word and the truth from the gospel. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.